came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Xenia. Hi, Jason. How are you? Pretty good. So excited to um, bring this second episode of season six to everybody. Um, more great content coming up today. I know. And also the most exciting news of this season so far. Yes. And, well, maybe of the season, right? Which I think finally, finally we can share is that um, in the end of January, um, there will be a new version of Disasters Deconstructed podcast in French. Um, thanks to our friends, Loic Ledeau and uh, Louise Bauman. So, yeah, for all the francophone listeners, um, there will be so much more content. It will be different content. It will be in French. So Jason and I um, will be listening and not understanding, but I'm sure it will sound great. <laughs> yeah, we kept that pretty quiet, but we've been working on that with them for a while and it's finally happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so exciting. It's, it's, you know, part, I guess, of um, what we've been really trying to do, you know, and by we, I mean, quite a few of us scholars who have been trying to uh, promote and act on the manifesto. And um, we are glad that we can release the content in more than just English. And of course, you remember our episodes in Spanish. We hope that there will be a few more coming out. Um, and yeah, so it's great that now we have this in French. So yeah, if any of you want to... Um, Release some episodes in other languages. Just get in touch and let us know. We are always up for playing. Yeah, we've had a, we've talked to a few people about that, haven't we? Um, uh -huh. And very excited that this is happening as a, a full, like, separate spin-off podcast, which is amazing. Amazing. So yeah, watch the space. Um, look at our tweets on social media and you know on Facebook and our posts on Facebook because we will provide the links to the episodes, of course. Uh, mm. And I'm sure Loic and Louise um, will be tweeting about this too. But I must admit, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to do the podcast in Russian. Like, I, I don't know. I can't talk about my work in Russian. I, I lack, um, I don't know, terminology, intelligence. Um, it's really difficult. You know, it's really difficult. Maybe you just need practice. Yeah. What if you maybe. talked about, about it in Russian to somebody all the time? Maybe I can bore my mom when I see her, yeah. you know, in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, do that. Okay, I will. Anyway, let's talk about today's episode. So we're so excited today to finally discuss something that Ksenia and I have always been chatting about, um, seems like all the time, research positionality. And when we read non-disaster literature that concerns feminism or sexuality, or even politics and power, the researcher's positionality is always made clear. Yet in disaster texts, it's almost always hidden. 
right? Like all the time. I don't think I've ever seen a paper that says, you know, this is who I am and this is what I do. Yeah. I think you and I have been kind of told off for that a couple of times um, by our favorite. Yeah, you're, like too. you're not supposed to, right? You're not <laughs> no. supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> no, be neutral and objective. You know, <laughs> there you go. Anyway, so we're so glad um, to have with us today three wonderful early career researchers who, together with their co-authors, really made us reflect um, on our own positionality and its impact on what we do and how we do it in the context of research. And so join us today, Asneha Krishnan, Susie Goodall, and Anushka Masurska. Dr. Sneha Krishnan is a researcher, an artist, and a writer. She's currently based in India, and her research largely focuses on health and disasters. She's been working with grassroots organizations and academic institutions. Um, and if you don't follow Sneha on Twitter, you really should. Um, Sneha publishes a lot of wonderful things, um, and we will link her handle in the show notes. And Sneha's paper um, in this special issue was co-authored with Robert Soden, Ben Aguion, Ron Gun Liu and Pradip Katiwada. And if you haven't seen it yet, then do engage with it in the special issue. And of course, the link will be in the show notes as well. Um, our second guest today is Susie Goodall, who is a PhD researcher at Loughborough University in the UK. And um, I am declaring the conflict of interest here. <laughs> Susie, <laughs> Susie is my PhD researcher, and it's been my absolute pleasure to have been working with Susie for the past couple of years. Um, so Susie's research focuses on scientific and local knowledges in China, where she's looking in particular at landslides in Gansu province. Susie's paper in this special issue has been co-authored with uh, Dr. Monin Del Pinto and Zainab Khalid. And finally joining us today is Anushka Masurska, who is also a PhD researcher here in the UK, but at the University of Leeds. She's interested in unpacking how discourses that portray disasters as natural in quotation marks mask the sociopolitical processes such as colonization and oppression that often make indigenous peoples vulnerable. And of course, Anushka has contributed to our audience participation episode, so it's really, really great to have you here today as a guest. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, so your voices as individuals were so prominent in the papers that are being featured in the Emerging Voices special issue. And we got to know you all as we were reading through your papers, it feels like. And so I wonder, how did you decide to position yourselves so strongly in these pieces? And what does that mean to you in your disaster scholarship overall? And perhaps you could start with Sneha. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. It's actually an honor to be here. I've been like an avid listener of the podcast. Um, and it is quite exciting to be talking about this paper because uh, on this podcast because it's actually um, an opportunity not only to share my voice and my co-authors' voices, but also acknowledge the unheard voices of the people that have influenced my work on the ground, in the academia, and also on Twitter, actually. Um, so the journey of the paper in itself is quite an interesting story. A bunch of us who were part of a fellowship program called Rest for DRM, another abbreviation. Uh, it was actually responsible engineering uh, for science and technology and DRM, as we all know, is disaster risk management. We would actually get together every Thursday um, to just chat about participation and various aspects of it and how we integrate it in our work. We would also have some time at the end 
which was very unusual to maintain like an individual online journal. Uh, we had some prompts sometimes. Sometimes we were just documenting our discussions individually. But it actually helped us to hold space for each other's thoughts mm-hmm. about participation, about our own privileges, our lived experiences, cultural differences, etc., and even disciplinary differences. So when the program ended after four months, we were actually wondering what what can we do so that others are also encouraged to do something similar um, and take time to reflect, take time to pause in our daily works. So this is something that I thought was quite rare in our field. We hadn't uh, done something like this before, so it was quite unique for us and we wanted to share that. So that's how the paper came out. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I remember it, uh, the piece that you wrote for IREC. Do you remember this piece, Ksenia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we really appreciate your work, and thanks for joining us today. Um, could we come to you next, Susie? Sure. Thanks, Jason. Um, and hi, everyone. So it's really interesting listening to Sneha because I think our approach also just fell out quite naturally from the conversations we were having with each other, um, triggered by by the call for this special issue and by the manifesto that uh, preceded it. And the way that the content for the paper built up, it was really just the three of us starting to have a conversation with each other via email uh, because we were in different parts of the world um, and starting with some initial questions like what influenced our our research topics, um, how we relate with and identify with people in the areas where we're working and what that meant for our research practice. So it's like we had enough in common as we were all doing PhDs with an element of geoscience and natural hazards and vulnerability. Um, So this was like a natural starting point for us to explore and voice and listen to and understand some of the differences in our positionality um mm-hmm. and yeah i think for our disaster scholarship overall we definitely realized the value of being able to question and challenge each other mm-hmm. but in a in a supportive context of friendship really and and also challenge the literature mm-hmm. thanks susie i love that um okay finally anuska please cool great thank you so much jason and um yeah, so this paper is actually quite different to a lot of the other papers that I plan to write that aren't out yet. <laughs> um, they're always, you know, they're always just being drafted. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> same, yeah, same, so same, same. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's actually quite a different paper. And I honestly never intended, um, I never thought I would write this paper at all. It was really triggered by the call for the special, uh, yeah, call for the special issue. So this paper is really uh, the tip of the iceberg of a lot of other work that I was doing within my university. Um, this was mainly sort of activism in academia. We had various speakers come in. Uh, lots of work around equality, diversity and inclusion, um, lots of different anti-racism groups, both within the University of Leeds and actually beyond it. And my colleagues and I, we often felt we were coming up against some of the same struggles and they were so frustrating. And I'm sure many of you and many listeners can relate to this as well. And I just felt 
you know, some of these these issues really need to be platformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I saw the call for the special issue and I thought this could be a way to do that. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, what I would write about, how I do it. But I did have um, a research diary and I've kept this research diary for such a long time. Um, I, I started it before my PhD and I thought this is this could be a way that I could uh, I could analyze this and use that to highlight these ongoing issues. So I started this process, but I felt incredibly vulnerable and really doubtful of myself, particularly, you know, exposing parts of my diary that I didn't think would actually ever be seen by anyone other than me. And I was also very, very aware that um, if not done well, these kinds of works can be self-indulgent and navel-gazing. And so I had this sort of back and forth in my head about how I was going to do this and how I could do this respectively and sensitively. And I came to the conclusion that being engaged in activism and academia did mean that I did have something valuable to say that needed to be said, but I had to say it carefully. And I absolutely had to position myself really carefully and build on the works of scholars writing about these issues pre-pandemic. So highlighting the structural issues within universities, you know, uh, institutionalized racism and sexism and those sorts of things. That's great. Thank you so much. And we'll, um, we'll come back to all of you and talk a little bit more about the, the way that you thought through this positionality. And well, Sneha, I'll start with you. Um, I guess it, it is now quite obvious after this introduction that um, the pieces that we're discussing today and the, the featuring in the Emerging Voice special issue are all dialogues, right? Either with your colleagues or kind of with, and friends or with yourself, um, like Anushka in the form of diary. Um, and to me and to Jason, I know as well, dialogue is such a powerful way of learning and reflecting. And of course, it features prominently in Freire's work that we've been obsessing over for quite a few years now and kind of encourage everybody else to obsess over. And so, Sneha, in your paper in particular, you and your co-authors kind of go back and forth, reflecting on your own work and your own experiences outside of your organizations. Uh, And you've alluded to some of this already in your introduction, but I wonder, um, could you tell us a little bit more, why have you chosen such a way of writing and how do you think it fits in a wider disaster scholarship? Um, thank you, Ksenia, uh, for that question. I think um, it gives me a chance to follow on from my story. Um, so once we recognized that we wanted to share um, and document our experience through those four months, we actually came across uh, Richa Nagar's work with the Sangatin Collective in Uttar Pradesh in India, where uh, women, uh, seven women actually came together, co-created, and documented uh, their work, their activism in rural hinterlands in a book called Playing with Fire, Feminist Thought and Activism Through Seven Lives in India. This was published by Zuban Books. So Sangatin is actually a concept which um, expresses solidarity of reciprocity and of enduring friendship, especially among women. And so one thing that I draw from my feminist thinking, even in my teaching, is around critical reflexivity, uh, where we can acknowledge our power, our privileges, our biases. 
So in a similar fashion, we were actually uh, quite impressed uh, when Robert shared this work with us. So we wanted to document something very similar using a polyvocal approach where we all could present our ideas, our disagreements, differences in our disciplinary training about how to use participation in our own projects, for example. So it was quite unique because in my uh, say decades worth of reading of disaster work, I had never come across such a paper in our academic uh, training because it doesn't offer that many theoretical or empirical contributions. This is why I, we felt that it was important to retain each of our individual voices and opinions rather than having to present a very sanitized, unified version of, say, a report. Um, and I have also come across other papers in this special issue, which actually used similar dialogue-based format. And I, I really appreciate that disaster scholarship can now move forward where we don't have to focus on agreements and consensus building about use of definitions and concepts, but actually documenting how our lived experiences and differences are more important uh, to retain the diversity in our field. Perhaps this is the first essential step. Having said that, I would also be excited to invite multiple voices, multiple stakeholders in different languages who can present their stories in a similar way. That would be quite exciting, I think. Yeah, I love this. It, it's yeah, it's been such a great um, piece. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I want to um, follow up now with Susie and talk about your uh, work a bit. And so I know from your piece that you and your co-authors are all from different parts of the world, and you actually use these differences as the basis for an open and horizontal, or as you would call it in the piece, cross-cultural conversation. And this really pushes the boundary, I think, of what many would consider a normal academic paper, because your paper doesn't offer one single voice of a so-called objective researcher, but instead offers a multiplicity of voices and views. And so I wanted to ask you, why is such multiplicity important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Jason. And it was definitely one of the things that I enjoyed most about working on the paper with Monia and Zainab, reflecting on and learning about our cultures. Um, yeah, and we, I mean, we start with the question, are we insiders or outsiders? Mm. And what's, what's fascinating is that, I mean, our conclusion is that dichotomy, that it's not a dichotomy. Um, you can be from a place and you can have some languages in common, but be, maybe be still viewed as an outsider. Um, yeah, so I think multiplicity is important for me because it gives us the opportunity to expand our view of the world and also challenges our preconceptions and I use the analogy in the paper the simple analogy of a cup of tea um, mm. so to me growing up in the UK a cup of tea is black tea brewed with leaves in a bag and with a drop of cold milk added I know that's mm. not everyone's mm. cup of tea mm. <laughs> 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 but but the, so as I spent time with people from different parts of the world, then I, I realized there's loads of t different teas out there. You can have milky sweet masala chai. You can have butter tea. I mean, there are thousands of different teas, green, white, red, black, you name it. Um, so I see that as a kind of expanding my horizons and broadening um, 
yeah, broadening my views. Mm. And a kind of very simple analogy to, to show that there are many ways to see and understand the world. So then, for me, the, the cross-cultural dialogue leads me to the conclusion that actually I can't be completely objective because I'm shaped by my upbringing, my early experiences, the social norms that I learned and I adhere to. Um, like the reason I like my tea, like I like my tea, <laughs> is because of where, <laughs> where I come from in a way. I mean, it's, it's kind of there. So I don't think we can understand our positionality until we start properly dialoguing with others who think differently. And yeah, how, how do I know that what I think is truly independent thought? Is it just a function of the people I follow on Twitter? What my parents taught me as a child, my educational background, et cetera, et cetera. So it really helps me explore those questions. Mm. And recognizing and voicing and listening to multiple views, I think it helps us to avoid a we know better than you attitude. Mm. Um, because I think then we can recognize that every perspective is valid because it has an impact on our individual actions and words. Um, and also because we can't effectively communicate with each other unless we know what each other's views are. But having said all that, I, I do want to kind of make it clear that I'm not saying that I think all views are equally true or that there is no truth. So for me, my research is still very much a search for, for truth. I think it matters that we try to know why landslides happen, when they might happen, what their impacts are and how we can mitigate the risks. Um, I think it matters where human decisions and actions may cause or increase disaster risk. And I don't have all the answers. Um, and at the same time, among all the different views and theories, there is still truth. Um, so what I get excited about is bridging those gaps. Um, and actually, a lot of this thinking cross-culturally can also apply to cross-disciplinary work and interdisciplinary work um, and, and bridging those um, research cultures as well. That's so interesting. Thank you, Susie. And it's like, I guess it depends on the subject as well, because it's like, mm. maybe there is no truth to what is the perfect cup of tea. But on other subjects, maybe there is a truth, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Um, Anushka, we'll move to you now. And you wrote a diary. This, this is crazy. It's amazing. I absolutely loved it as a format. As a person who um, attempted to write diary many times, but absolutely failed to actualize it. I was really, really excited to read your piece. And so you reflect um, in your diary on how the normative processes, such as, say, ethical approvals that often only reflect the realities and concerns of the Western world and Western science, can really cripple research. And you argue in your piece that research objectives should be more important than predefined methodological steps. And we face kind of the same thing over and over in peer reviews, right? Where we get the reviews that tell us that positivism is the only way to go. And, you know, Jason and I moaned about this for hours, I think. Um, so 
how do we tackle this? How do we tackle this kind of this normativity that actually undermines research? Yeah, great question. Thank you so much, Ksenia. And yeah, and actually, um, I'll just say that I've actually been keeping just a personal diary since I was about like maybe eight years old. Oh, and wow. it's really interesting. I went, yeah, it's great when I go back to my family house, like check under the bed and read some of the weird stuff I wrote when I was younger. <laughs> but um, yeah, I found an artistic depiction of um, the 7-7 bombings that I did <laughs> back in wow. yeah, back in 2005, mm. I think. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't very accurate, obviously. But um, yeah, so yeah, interesting. But um, anyway, yeah, thank you so much for that. And honestly, um, I actually don't know how we tackle it. I think it's, it's obviously a huge, huge issue. Um, I think in terms of peer review, I think the responsibility lies with editors to recognize that positivism isn't the only way. But I think that's also a very simplistic answer because I don't think that happens all the time <laughs> um what i've been doing and i think has been echoed already by sneha and also by susie is the importance of having a community of uh, phd researchers or early career researchers who really share the same values as you mm. or similar values and uh, are working towards the same sort of goals like social justice type goals with their mm. research and I found that that's really 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 helped me and others we can keep each other accountable um, I love reading their work we can have if we need to have a rant about something that's happened we can do that mm. it sort of re-energizes us so that we can start challenging things from within our institution and I think that's really important because we have been able to make some change, even if it's not, you know, the big radical change that we really want. But having said that, I don't think that's that's not a long term solution. It's just a coping mechanism. Right. Mm. Uh, even with that activism that we try to engage with, I still think it's still relatively small scale, even if it is important. So something that I've actually really been reflecting on and something that I feel really, really strongly about and I keep coming back to. And I'm talking here uh, specifically within a British context. Mm. Um, I really think that um, the British education system, we really need to be teaching about colonialism and its impacts and its legacies. I mean, it's still ongoing, really, isn't it? But mm. we really need to be mm. teaching about it at a much, much younger age. In fact, I don't think that we, I definitely did not learn about it in secondary school here. So I really think that that's so important. And then I think that. Perhaps when, I don't know, maybe when students enter undergraduate, when they're a little bit older, start to introduce exactly how science has been shaped by colonialism and how science was used to colonize so that students from an earlier age and from across different disciplines begin to understand that science is not objective yeah. and it's just one way of viewing the world. Because yeah. I work in an interdisciplinary department. I work in a climate change institute. so. There's a, there's a few social scientists, but it's mainly physical scientists. Mm. And that's fine, but they quite often don't understand what we do. Um, mm. And it can be quite frustrating sometimes, to be honest. But um, but when I have really sat down and talked talk to them, I don't get the impression that they're just, you know, ignorant or anything like that. I just think they don't understand or know this history. And I think it'd be so valuable to know that. I was, uh, yeah, I was just thinking perhaps... Having something like decolonizing methodologies by Linda Toray Smith as mm. like key reading 
would mm-hmm. be incredible. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> um, but just for for students in every discipline to understand how their subject might be intertwined mm. with colonial history, I think would be incredible. Mm. Well, you know, in in um, University of Florida last year, I started to teach a research theory course for doctoral, mm. for like a core course for all doctoral students. So I can I can tell you that they do <laughs> have to read that book as part of yeah their doctoral okay. studies <laughs> in my in my college. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Yeah, we have been trying to do more at the university to try and get uh, more students engaged with uh, these kinds of texts. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and some heads of department are really willing, really understand, and others just turn around and say, I don't see how that's relevant to me. And right. it's really difficult as a as a PhD researcher to be saying to a head of school, well, actually, it is relevant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so... I have a question to all of you, and we have been um, asking this to all of our guests in uh, season six. And so the question um, is, what inspires you and what do you think needs to be challenged in disaster studies? Maybe you can start um, with you, Snap. Oh, Jason, that is such a difficult question. <laughs> um because um, I, I look for inspiration in every corner, every day. Some of the struggles that you have in a neoliberal university and mm. as a, a woman-led uh, startup that I run, it's actually sometimes quite frustrating, but sometimes equally challenging uh, and inspiring at the same time. The fortitude of women and communities that I have worked with on the ground is sometimes the foremost inspiration that centers me and pushes me to do my best. Having said that, um, I think I'm also quite pragmatic as a practitioner and researcher both. I'm happy with incremental changes as well. So holding space uh, becomes quite important for me. So people who do that is amazing. I, I really love how they do it and how that helps them center their energies towards work that they really love to do. So recently, um, I heard Roxani Cristali and her feminist thinking about conflict and violence has inspired mm-hmm. me yesterday. Um, you both have always been such a great influence. Um, some of the teachers and some of our academic uh, friends have been such a great influence. What I would really think is the struggle Um, alluding to your second part of the question, is that this is an interesting direction for disaster studies, the representation and challenges of doing interdisciplinary research, the efforts and barriers for engaging with stakeholders. We've all heard that, but instead of trying to um, unify everyone's voices, maybe we should diversify and bring all these multiple voices across gender, across different ideas about participation and development. Uh, I, f- I feel these are all important. Let's not try and sanitize all of them. There's so much happening on the ground and very rarely gets reflected in teaching or papers or academic circles. I think that would be a challenging direction for us to go towards. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Susie? Yeah, I completely agree with what Sne has just said. And what I was going to mention was um, 
actually just bringing people together that's what I find um inspirational and when Mm. when people do come together as we are doing now um almost to listen to each other and also arrive at a point where we value the knowledge um that each person has Mm. whether that's experts and scientists um, and researchers whether that's members of the general public um whether we're talking in terms of local knowledge traditional knowledge and also people responsible for setting policy and making uh, investment financing decisions um that's <laughs> of course kind of wishful thinking and i i do recognize the challenges and the frictions um that exist but i think it's not not a bad aim to have. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Susie. Anuska, please. Yeah, so um, in terms of what inspires me, um, there, are, yeah, there are several things. So I'd say number one is my friends and my colleagues that are doing this PhD journey with me. Uh, we quite often share work, do our own little peer review before anything goes out to actual peer review. And whenever I read their work, I just feel so inspired. Uh, I'm always so so taken aback by how well they position themselves within their work as well, because we all write about similar things. Um, I've also been so inspired earlier this year. I went to, uh, well, I virtually went to the Society for Applied Anthropology's annual conference, and there was a risk and disaster topical interest group there. And that was really the first time I'd engaged with that group. And I remember mm. I was deep in lockdown in my pajamas late into the night because you know taking into account the time difference and my heart was like pounding when they were talking because some of the stuff they said was incredible and I just felt so happy to have found people that were coming up against the same challenges as me Uh, I think particularly Elizabeth Marino and Julie Maldonado uh, did Mm. a session workshop type thing about working with physical scientists and mm. yeah. sometimes just saying that you know sometimes it is just frustrating and but you can you can still work in these big groups and get your point across and it can it will be included it, you just need to you just need to get there and work through it um so yeah so i found i was really inspired by that um in terms of what needs challenging i think i've chosen a really practical um element um as opposed to sneha and susie i just think we need to be less obsessed with good journals i think there's um (laughs) i just i just don't i don't really get it i i quite often i really try especially in the last year or so i've really tried to look at other journals uh like ones even like if they're publishing in different languages Mm. just google translate that if i can access it sometimes access is an issue or even or even just obsession with journals full stop (laughs) um when people are publishing really good stuff uh in different formats i think we should move towards using that as like sources as well obviously i'm not saying do away with the journal entirely but i think uh beginning to like value those sources as of knowledge as well uh would be really important i think particularly that a lot of really good practical stuff happens and is you know in reports or in blogs and things like that mm. so yeah that's um that's mine and i think yeah something that i was going to be in the um in the paper but then which i cut was thinking about 
could we cite tweets? Because I think we've all mentioned Twitter at this point, and I actually <laughs> yeah. do find it quite inspiring sometimes <laughs> as well. But um, I get so many good ideas through Twitter. Yeah. And I want uh-huh. to cite those tweets, but I can't. <laughs> Actually, in our upcoming paper, Jason, Wes, and I have cited the yeah. tweet. Whether yeah, yeah. You, you can. You brilliant. want it or not. Yeah, yeah. just do it. <laughs> just do it. Brilliant. You know, I think, I think I've referred back to one of yours and Jason's paper, actually, um, to back up some of my methods. So I think I'll be doing that again. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I love it. Um, well... I think we need to wrap up, but um, this has been amazing. And I want to thank you all for the work that you're doing, prioritizing this um, conversation about researcher positionality. And it's just really inspiring for us to see you doing this and to talk to you today. I hope for our listeners that it challenges um, you all to reflect on how you think and practice and um, that you pick up some, some new ideas in the show today. So thanks to all three of you for joining us and sharing space today. Thank you everyone, this is great. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Zenia, Jason and us, Neha Krishnan, Susie Kudo, Anushka Masurska on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>